Vampires and probably werewolves are for real, and they kill people. Ah, you think it's gotten real now? You don't know the first part of it. I was pretty freaked by watching the Moroi being dragged into the light, bursting in a fire in my books. They told me about blood drinkers and crazed family killer werewolves. But if that's all you think this is, you aren't going deep enough. Look, I'm a scientific-minded guy, and the scientific method would tell me that if it can be observed, then it can be measured, and if it can be measured, it is real. Sure. But that last part of a scientific paper, if you can throw your mind back to high school, or forward if you haven't gotten there yet, you'll recall part of the conclusions is the implications of the findings. Now, I saw a pale, monstrous-looking guy float, unaided out of a building, get shot with a spear gun, and only when he was struck by sunlight did he burn up. What are the implications of this? It seems you don't need to be traditionally lighter than air to float, and there's a class of matter that spontaneously combusts in the presence of solar photons, as if they are somehow different from all the other photons flying about the place. And what does this imply? Well, yeah, for lack of a better term, magic. Arthur C. Clarke said, and I'm paraphrasing of course, that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I think that's what I'm talking about. There are some hitherto undocumented natural principles that allow seemingly magic effects and monsters. Undocumented by recognised scientific bodies, that is. I mean, nuclear fusion existed right there, burning in our sky every day, even before atomic theory was postulated, let alone Einstein's theory of relativity. The sun just burned merrily away while we sat looking at it without a clue as to what it was. It was magic. It was God, or it was a tear in reality, showing us a glimpse of some other world. Maybe it really is. And so vampires are wandering about, doing their vampire thing, while we watch and have no clue how they do it or what they are. I've had thoughts on the subject, but I simply don't have the theoretical background to make any sense of it. Too long didn't read? Well, magic is a thing, and my books talk about it. I've got this book here that I'm about to read. I'll call it a grimoire because that sounds more fitting. Grimoire. Yeah, so I I flipped through it yesterday, but I, it didn't really catch me like the Journals of the Hunters or David Gelstein's work, so I didn't think any more of it. But something happened today. Flashback. I'm just going to tell you what happened, okay? Look, so I had an interview with a recruiting agent uh, as a pimp for us IT practitioners, if you like. So it was hot and sunny and there was there was no clouds in the way of the sun. It was this sort of day that your basic Dracula would be hanging out in an air-conditioned cinema or casino. I, on the other hand, had a half hour to kill before I had to go. So I went into a cafe to grab some coffee and have a think. 
the guy in line before me spoke animatedly with the barista and got a large for the price of a small. The barista thought no one noticed, but I did. So I asked for a large and paid for a large. I didn't even get a smile. I didn't think any more of it. The train up to Perth was mostly empty at this time in the morning, after rush hour and not yet lunch. It smelled like someone from the night previous had a bit of a chunder in the middle of the floor, and the cleaners had spread as much of this uh, antiseptic stink killer as they could. They only succeeded in making the carriage smell like chuck and cleaning product. Mmm, the joy of public transport. I dodged around the three or four people hanging around, homeless and useless looking outside of Macca's, and continued to the recruiter's office. I wondered now about those homeless people. How many of them are genuine cases of human misfortune, and how many are or were victims of some kind of monster? The Maroys victim, old Vic the victim, had seemed pretty useless and stupid. So the moment the Maroy had vaporised, he seemed to regain his wits. Are there, are there monsters that cause chronic depression, inflict abuse on kids or induce schizophrenia? Do people lose themselves in drugs to try to wipe away memories of things that should not be? Like that's, that's beyond my ability to understand and help at this point. But, but I went to the recruiter and had the meet and greet. I told him how much of an asset I'd be to any company that hired me and he nodded and smiled but didn't seem overly enthused. I guess the market is a bit slow at the moment. Uh, so I dropped in afterwards at the hospital and caught up with Heidi when she was on a short break. So those nurses, they get run pretty hard. Is it just that there's not enough money to hire more, or is that only a certain breed of people want to be nurses? You know, people who can't help but try to help lost causes, try to repair people. I wouldn't pick Heidi as that sort. But she does enjoy what she does. End flashback. It was only when I got back home that I started thinking about how that guy at the shop seemed to so easily connect with the barista and even got a discount on his coffee. It was like magic. He said some special words, made gestures, produced some material components, which would be money, and magic happened. He charmed the barista. People do magic around us all the time. When I saw a guy do a forward flip over a park bench once, sure, you could easily say it was practice and training, and it was, but when you break it down, you see, he prepared before he began the run. He rubbed his hands together, wiped them over his hair, he breathed a couple puffs out, bounced on the balls of his feet before starting the run. When he jumped, he made a little noise. When you look at it, it's very much like he cast a spell. The training was necessary, but then how can we say his other ritual actions weren't also required? This grimoire mentions this very thing. Here, I'll, I'll find the page. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. On the practice and execution of social priming magic. The book goes on about it uh, for a while, but the basic premise is that there is a method and practice to our social interaction whereby you can achieve predictable results by using known ritual and formulae. 
That's what social priming magic is. There are pages of diagrams and formulae describing how, for a given intent, you can determine and execute the required movements, sounds, and use the correct fetish. No, not that kind of fetish. It's a physical object to focus and channel magic through. We do this every day. I did it when I bought my coffee. My intent was to get coffee. I said, can I have a large long black with a dash of milk? And I used my credit card as the fetish. The result was I got coffee. You could say, oh, that isn't magic. But then you can say that of anything. A caveman would think my credit card was a magic wand. I waved it at the FPOS machine. It beeped and the barista happily gave me coffee. Just because we think we understand something doesn't mean it isn't magic. I bet some advanced alien race that could shoot lightning from its fingertips would just take it for granted, but we might just say, wow, that is magic right there. So I'm pretty psyched about this concept. Even more so that I have what appears to be instructions on how to work magic. I'm going to get a free coffee next time. That's my goal. If I can work this magic, get a free coffee, then I think that will be proof. I'm getting something for free at a shop would be magic in my books. Ha! In my books, there is magic to get something for free. Look, I'll need to practice a little before I build up to a free coffee. Okay, so I stood in front of the mirror and practiced. I think I've got the idea. Just cock my head a little, smile just the right amount, then, as I'm asking for coffee, or it could be anything as far as I can tell, I raise one shoulder slightly, nod a little, extend my hand with fingers open, and then closing as if to accept something. I then have to sound some nonsense syllables just quietly before asking what I want. Then I do this thing with my tongue and offer money with the other hand. I'll have to get some cash out to do that. I've done all I can in front of a mirror. I'll have to get out and try this in the real world. Real world. Is that such a thing anymore? Talk about not really knowing how the world works. If this works, then I don't think anyone knows how the world really works. We each have a fragment of the truth and believe that to be the whole of it. Oh, crap. If... Oh, hang on. If monsters are real and magic works, then is there really a god or gods, demons? Soul? Oh, I think my brain is just overloaded. Can I even be an atheist, knowing there are vampires created by people having a spiritual closeness to the demigod Lilith? I think I might revise my view to being agnostic. I'm not saying I believe the religios have it right, but God or gods? No, look, but I'm not saying they don't have it right and i'm not saying there aren't godlike entities or natural forces yet yeah, i'll go with that the religions probably got it wrong but there may well be godlike things out there <sighs> okay okay that that didn't go well uh, i just i just got yelled at and chased out of the merchant coffee shop ah uh, look uh, there's a bunch more shops all along the Mandra foreshore here. 
uh, I think I think I really muffed that but but it encourages me because other than perhaps looking a little odd I didn't do anything that warranted being chased off it must be the magic uh, I didn't do it right I, I got a, a backfire or something actually I, I wonder if the grimoire talks about consequences or failure <laughs> I probably should have thought of that oh well uh, how much trouble can I get in really looking for free coffee yeah, it's not as if I'm asking someone to hand over their life savings or firstborn. Would that be easier or harder? I just assumed asking something of low value would be easier, but uh, look, I don't, I don't want to rob people. I'll take a free coffee, but that's hardly going to cause hardship. Well, uh, here goes my next try. Oh my God free coffee. I'm a wizard. An actual magic using wizard. I got dirty looks, insulted, refused service and chased out of a bunch of shops up and down the foreshore. But here I am at the chocolatier with free coffee in hand. This woo is real. The book talks about other aspects of magic, but that all looked like bunk. However, social priming magic works so maybe the other stuff does too it looks way more dangerous though there were references to binding an elemental to a fetish you know like a big rubber foot or no not that sort of fetish though you could do that I suppose so you could make a magic fire wand that lets you invoke the fire elemental power hmm like a cigarette lighter or a match they're a kind of magic when you think about it uh, special components align in a particular way and then invoked using particular hand actions accompanied by the sound of the lighter or match strike. Oh, magic is everywhere. We just don't think about it. I'd bind an air elemental to a broom and use it to fly around on. Ha! But I have a feeling that failing at that will get me more than just a cussing out. Maybe not. Magic, spirits, gods, monsters, and fate? It seems that way, but I wonder if fate is a real thing, or just something we use to justify our actions and fit events to intent post hoc. There is, however, I feel, an order to the universe. You could look at it as one great big rude Goldberg machine. Each action necessarily kicks off the next in an ordered and inevitable fashion. But, like a Rube Goldberg, you can't easily see what the intent is, if there is any real use at all. Drop a rock and it falls under gravity. Is that fate and predetermined? Once you let go it is. But we have free will, right? Probably not so much. Our brains are just big chemical reactions, moving from our initial state to our final dead state, and the reactions that occur within it are all necessary results of our beginning conditions and external stimuli. Quantum superstates. They may have some effect to vary the outcome, but that still isn't free will as such. I have a feeling I'm just trying to rationalise away my responsibility for what I did, and 
and what happened to Heidi as a result. Maybe tonight's special event is the necessary outcome from my stupidity. Ah, look, I'll get the next journal on because I'm talking about stuff I haven't covered yet. Oh, and here is a fat slice of what at first you might think was serendipity. Unless you subscribe to the view of fate I just expounded. In the movies when the protagonist discovers their superpowers or learns magic, they always go too far. They get a big head and then get punished. Me? Not so much. Turns out, I'm pretty freaking awesome and immune to bad consequences. Yes, I realise I just said that and I, I think I'll turn it down just a touch. I'll rephrase that to, I'm feeling pretty freaking awesome and I feel like I'm bulletproof right now. That's probably more like it, but still. I've just touched up my resume and sent it off to Gemworld Pty Ltd for a job as Senior Analyst Programmer, thanks to Beatrice. Beatrice was that stunner who arrived late to the estate auction, where I got the books. I ran into her again. Oh, Holland, let me start over. I want to capture this scene as I relive it in my buzzing brain box. I was back at home reading my grimoire. The real title is um, Esoterica of Floriborology. I have absolutely no idea what Floriborology is, or if it implies the existence of a Floriborist, Floriborist, or is it a Floriborologist? Uh, yeah, so anyway, I googled it and found nothing concrete. Anyway, the closest was a reference to the blooming tree crest of a Catholic monastic order established in the 13th century, or at least the monastery was founded then. Uh, who knows when the order was? There's um, pretty scant reference, and I wouldn't think Catholic monks would be getting around casting spells. Anyway, I was reading my grimoire when the thought occurred to me. I might be able to find supporting reference material. Probably not about the magic this book spoke of, but at least some information about cosmology. That's the metaphysics around quantum theory and other parts of physics that have ragged edges bordered by the unknown or maybe historical information about classical esoterica, like the Rosicrucians or something. So I found a bookstore in Perth in the basement of a Northbridge shop right near the State Library of all places. I put on my plastic coat and hood and braved the miserable grey skies and spitting rain to get on the train and kick my way through the free-roaming trash that tumbles down Northbridge streets like tumbleweeds in an old west town. The entrance to the store was a little tough to find because it was right next to a goth slash dark wave fashion boutique. I kept walking past the PVC jeans and studded platform boots, uh, looking right at the door, not realising it was a bookstore. When I finally opened the door and went down, I had to do a double take to make sure I wasn't going down a service entrance. The bookstore had a low ceiling and was crammed full with narrow aisles of impressive-looking timber shelves groaning under the weight of expansive volumes. Now, the books ranged from well, teen fiction to old encyclopedia, uh, there were textbooks, and there was a locked glass cabinet filled with 
not only aged leather-bound books, but also miscellaneous artefacts like goblets, daggers and bowls. Naturally, I sidled my way over to the cabinets. In hindsight, I think it unlikely that a bookstore would simply stock actual magic books on the shelves for any old browser to purchase. But the cabinet still looked like it might have something interesting in it. So it was while I was standing there, just staring into the cabinet, not knowing what to look for and wondering if I should ask someone if I could have a closer look at some of the books when I noticed someone standing next to me. I turned my head just to confirm her presence, but was dumbstruck when I saw her. She was tall, a little shorter than me, maybe, about 170 centimetres, had blonde, shoulder-length, straight-cut hair with, I think you'd call them bangs, but I don't know, what am I, a fashion blogger? Anyway, her fringe was cut straight across at about brow level. She had this pale, smooth skin that looked so smooth, it could have been made of marble. There was a little blush to her high cheeks that totally made her look like a portrait of a Scandinavian, oh, I don't know, a, a Viking warrior princess, if they had such things. I'm, I'm not a Viking historian. What I know comes from watching TV, so admittedly I'm probably wrong. But I think you get the idea. She totally knocked me for a six. Of course, I recognised her from my first meeting with her. The effect of being so close to her and just looking at her was, um, you know in the cartoons when the character sees a beautiful woman, or more likely a beautiful rabbit, and their heart thumps out of their chest and their eyes go on stalks while their feet lift off the ground and they go rigid like being electrocuted? Well, I have a feeling that's what happened to me. It was such a shock. I could go on about what thoughts shot through my mind, except it would be a waste of breath. I think you get the idea. I was happy to see her. She pretty much ignored me. No, that's not right. That implies she even registered I was there. She was pretty absorbed in her own thoughts as she turned from the cabinet and started looking at some of the shelves. I did manage to pull my eyes off her and get back to my own searching. I found a couple of books, one about the mutability of time and the observer effect, and another big book of myths and legends. I was keen to see if anything in my books actually lined up with mainstream research. At the counter, I took a moment to align my intent with my actions and, I guess you'd say, I cast a spell. My intent was to get a 20% discount. I didn't want to rob the bookstore, but I didn't want to pay so much considering I'm in between jobs. They're not for long, but I didn't know it then. Anyway, I cast a spell. Which still seems a corny way of saying what, what I did, but the sales assistant gave me the discount and shoved the books at me. I turned to leave and just about ran straight into Beatrice. She smiled and I, um, uh, I think I probably blushed or something embarrassing. So I said, Sorry, I didn't see you there. She said, Oh, she has a British accent, so let me see. That's not a problem. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a pretty poor example, but she's got this very nice, crisp, posh British accent. From there, I managed to introduce myself and we got to talking. The shopkeeper was looking a little miffed at being ignored, so we went upstairs and had a coffee. 
I've felt a bit awkward, but I've been feeling pretty good since that free coffee I, I had, so yeah, my confidence was running high. Turns out she works as the personal assistant to the CEO of Gemworld. That's a woman named Shilpa Patel. Uh, you'd have heard of Gemworld. They're the makers of that rather addictive set of games where you match gems to get clues to a cryptic puzzle. Anyway, when Beatrice found I was looking for work, she mentioned they had an opening for a programmer. I remember she said, and excuse my attempt at an accent, I'm so glad I met you. I think you're exactly what Shilpa was looking for, and maybe what I've been looking for. Yeah, I've got a date with her tomorrow night. These books have been the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. The most confusing and frightening thing, but the most amazing. Wow, I know. I even warned myself at the start of that journal. The hero, and I'm hardly that, but the hero gets a big head and plows straight in a disaster. Well, I don't doubt they also feel frickin' awesome and bulletproof. That's the whole thing about Pride Before a Fall. But now, you know how I met Beatrice. But not why. You've also got a bit of insight into how everything went so wrong. I'm not feeling bulletproof now. Not that being bulletproof would help. It isn't bullets I'm afraid of. It's more the being literally cooked alive and eaten that worries me more now. A bullet would be nice and quick, mundane even. Well, I'm prepared and I have a plan. It's not a great one, but it is a plan to come out the other side. It was actually B, that's Beatrice, who helped me uh, put it all together with Venus, Tony and John. Uh, you won't know about them yet, but they're solid. Tony, John and Venus. They complete the famous five. I know, not famous, but there's five of us, and Venus is a bit like Timmy the dog if you remember the old TV show. Probably not. Look, I think I think it was a book series too by Enid Blyton, but I could be wrong. Hey, Beatrice, she encouraged us and put us on the right course, I think, and the rest of us we kicked ass. Hopefully it will be a repeat performance tonight. I met Venus, uh, look, I've got this journal. It'll be easy to play this back. Well, it's my first day at Gemworld today. I'm pretty excited to be working here. Seems so cool and modern. Uh, last week's date with Beatrice was an even mix of frightening, amazing and fun. She's a very funny, intelligent woman. I can't believe she went out with me. You know, we went to dinner, we talked about stuff. We touched on the esoteric and some myths and legends. Beatrice is fully inner demons and angels, not as real beings wandering about smiting and tempting, but I think rather as symbols of purity and corruption. Although I think I think maybe they are real beings. I mean, why not? Look, she's got a great philosophical view of the world. I raise the possibility that the murders and, and missing people in Perth 
might be due to people giving in to the demonic side of their nature. She fully agreed. I think she might be open to believing in more than what appears on the surface. You know, magic and vampires and junk. Oh, yeah. Okay, lucky well, yeah, I, I still have trouble saying that. It, saying it out loud sort of feels, feels a little bit silly, really. Okay, well, anyway, I'm off. I can't be late today. Just a quick note on my first day. I'm having lunch with a consulting accountant named Venus Lee. She works for Anthony Redmond Accounting and is seconded to Gemworld to help uh, with uh, an upcoming audit. Anyway, she's pretty cool and has taken me out to lunch. She's just ducked off for some reason, maybe the toilet. But I, I thought I'd take a note for my journal while I wait. I mean, she's, she's pretty intense. I asked if she had ever thought about what it meant for something to be considered magic and she got all well. Well, that's when she got intense. And she said with a straight face, Magic, demons, monsters, they're all real, you know. I've seen it. I was shocked and had to blink a few times to be sure I wasn't hallucinating. But she was just staring at me, examining my reaction. I've seen some pretty crazy stuff, I said. Like what? I saw a guy burst into fire when sunlight touched him and he didn't show up on my camera when I tried to take a photo. Wait here, I'll be back. That was her response. And she got up, looked back at me once, and then hurried off. Uh, it might not be the toilet she's gone to. Like, the way she reacted was pretty odd. What if she works for a vampire or something that doesn't want anyone knowing about this stuff? Uh, I probably shouldn't have opened my mouth. In the movies, there's always some super secret government organization working to cover this sort of thing up. Uh, yeah, I, I can just imagine that. Not here in Australia. I've worked for the government before. And yeah, no, not happening. Anyway, oh, look, she's coming back and no black sunglasses wearing goons to be seen. So, you know, that's nice. I'm either going to get a black bag put over my head and thrown to a big black van and whisked away to an undisclosed government facility, or... I'm going to meet some guy that Venus has a major crush on and his friend. She got back from running next door to Tony Maroney menswear in formal hire, where she apparently lined up this meeting with Tony Maroney himself. Look, Venus clearly has the hots for him, the way her eyes goggled and then glazed when she spoke about him. But this Tony guy is a fellow monster enthusiast like Venus, and she, uh, she thinks I simply must meet him and John. So when the police go through these journals for clues as to my disappearance, this might be the last entry they hear. Well, if that's the case, then I'll just say I'm going to meet these guys at Capistrano's Wine and Wood Fire Pizza. Well, Capistrano's is a really nice place. We had some good wine and the pizzas were excellent. I'll paint a little picture of the scene since I don't have a journal entry about the meeting itself. I remember it quite clearly. Capistrano's is set in a little courtyard formed by enclosing what might have once been a car park squeezed between two buildings on the terrace. That's the main drag through Perth. So the main dining and drinking area is actually outside 
with each table having its own large umbrella type of covering. Some lights and a gas heater under the hood illuminate each table in a warm yellow-orange glow. At the back is a covered area in front of a bar with seating and a large wood-fire oven to one side. The place is set up to give you the feeling of an open-air market with little private pockets of intimacy under the glow of the umbrella, hooded lights and heaters. Venus waved me over to the table in the far corner. There was a mural wrapping around the wall behind the table. It showed Romanesque architecture as if the courtyard continued on into Rome. Not that I know what Rome really looks like. Sitting at the table behind Venus, who'd come forward to meet me, were two men. One was a short, light-framed man with black wavy hair, swept to the side, and long enough to reach his left shoulder. He wore a crisp Euro-style suit with a striking yellow silk tie and blue shirt with white collar and cuffs. I could only assume that he was Tony Maroney, owner and manager of Tony Maroney Menswear and Formal High. The other man he was talking to was John Tran. John is huge, like 185 centimetres or 6 foot 2 in the old school measure. Uh, I reckon he probably weighed about 110 kilos, which is what, 200 odd, 220 or more pounds? Anyway, none of that was fat. His shaved head, slightly tanned Eurasian skin, made him look a bit like a half-Vietnamese Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I remember even then chuckling and shaking my head at poor Venus. She had the hots for Tony. That was clear. But it was also clear that Tony and John were a couple. I'm not sure if Venus knew that, but... Maybe she held out the uh, impossible hope, or if she was oblivious, maybe she she didn't even know. Like, I'll ask her one day. So I was introduced to Tony and John. Uh, it was like, um, so, so this is Tony and that's John. I'm continuing the Venus impersonation, I'm sorry. But she's a very sort of, uh, very particular lass in the way she talks. Her energy is, is quite exuberant so I greeted them and, and shook their hands they both smiled so warming and really seemed genuinely pleased to meet me I mean they're really good guys and I I don't think I could have asked for better friends I'm I'm both happy they're coming along with me tonight and worried that they'll get hurt because of me I'm not at all concerned about John really I mean holy crap what could hurt a demigod like that he works for Zurich Security and has extensive training as a bodyguard and security specialist, but Tony and Venus, well, a salesman and an accountant. Still, they're not all that soft. I'll dig out and include some journals that show their worth. Well, after the introductions, things were a little awkward until Venus broke the ice by giving each of us, in turn, a solid, intense stare. We're all experienced something of the real world. You stop telling us your story. She just stared at me, waiting. I felt pretty self-conscious. I looked at the other two, and they were just looking at me too. Not quite so laser eyes that could melt steel as Venus, but still with some intensity. I laughed and looked around, but these guys wouldn't let me off the hook. They just watched me without talking. So, I told them about the Maroi I saw in the Hunter. Though I couldn't be sure and still can't that the hunter was wearing all his clothes and gloves as protection against the chill touch of the Maroi, or if there was some other reason for keeping covered up. I theorised it could have been a vampire getting rid of a loose end that could reveal too much, 
draw attention from the wrong people. But I just don't know. John nodded. Tony glanced at John and then nodded too. Venus just turned to the others and said, See, Tony? Tony told me this story about his nonna, who had the sight, as they say. She could communicate with spirits and would keep her town in Capistrano, in the south of Italy, as it turns out, safe and read fortunes and so on. So she taught Tony about the spirit world, but it wasn't until Nonna was possessed by a demon that Tony believed her. I asked what he meant. How could anyone tell it was a demon and not a dementia or a brain tumour, for example? I'd heard of people being pronounced possessed by a demon, but pretty much just figured that epilepsy or brain damage or something. Tony just looked at me for a moment, apparently composing himself. When he finally spoke, he just said, I saw the demon's true form. I still don't know what that means, and he wouldn't say. It shook me a little, because of how earnestly he said it. There was no chance he was joking, and the memory of it clearly affected him, so I left it at that. John also had a strange story. For him, it was more recent. He was working security for a visiting businessman, working on a deal for mining rights, as if there's some other sort here in Perth. Look, they were at a camp in the mid-north of WA. The businessman had gone to bed, and John was doing a walk around before going to bed himself, when he heard a noise from behind the demountable used as an office. He walked around and shone his light, expecting to front off a foraging possum or similar. But there was a short, hairy man there apparently trying to break in. John called out to him and moved forward to grab the man. But the man turned his bearded face into the light and snarled, pulling back his lips to reveal sharp, jagged teeth. This alone wouldn't have spooked John. He'd seen all sorts in his line of work. But the little guy suddenly grew larger and hairier until he was something similar to a, a Wookiee, as John described it. But it had glowing red eyes and a jaw that unhinged like a snake's. He swore it could have swallowed him whole if he just stood there. Fortunately for John, his experience and training took over, and he clubbed the thing with his mag light and gave it a heavy kick. Apparently that was enough to send the thing on its way. You might wonder how dangerous his monster could have been, but then you haven't seen John in action. He isn't just big with vanity muscles, he knows how to use them. I've seen him throw a 50 kilo dead ball like he was throwing a basketball. So a clubbing from him, followed by a kick, would be like getting hit by a small car, I think. Let's say a Corolla. He was also quite convinced that this encounter couldn't be explained away as anything other than supernatural. And that left Venus. She hadn't personally witnessed anything, but had read of encounters, and she fully believed everything Tony said. I think he could have told her the sky was green and she'd have believed it. Then it came back to me. With the sincerity the others had displayed, I didn't hesitate to recount all the details of my encounter with the Maroi, and then I even told them of my books and the house and the, uh, I guess there's some kind of suicide note. That's what impressed them the most, the books, that is. They had looked for real information about, for lack of a better term, the real world, but without any luck. I told them of the magic I'd learned, but though they didn't outright dismiss it, I could tell they could be slower to accept that without a demonstration. I didn't bother at the time, there was too many other things to speak of. After story time, we had a few drinks and ate pizza. I really liked these guys, they got me. That's when Beatrice turned up. She had stopped by to pick up a pizza to take home when she saw me 
and Venus and came over to say hi. I was feeling brave and confident, so I introduced Tony and John as Tony, his nonna was possessed by a demon, and this is John, he kicked a bunyip's ass, literally. The guys looked a little taken aback, and in hindsight it was only because I'd had a couple of beers and was feeling so good that I blurted that out. But B just looked at each of us in turn with her brilliant blue eyes and nodded. Then she looked at me, cocked her head to one side, and after a moment asked, What about you? What have you done or seen? She paused. I was about to say something, I don't know what, when she continued, other than use magic to get a discount on books. She'd noticed that? I turned to look at Tony, John and Venus, who were looking at me with an appraising eye. Don't be so surprised, said Beatrice. I'm not blind or stupid. You might be interested in what is going on with the missing McCormack girl then. That's all she said before she turned, collected her pizza and left. Who's the missing McCormack girl, I asked. I don't watch the news, it usually just angers and saddens me. It was Venus who answered. Jennifer McCormack is a six-year-old who went missing from her backyard last week, she said. I'm just going to quit trying to talk like her. It makes me feel a bit stupid. She just disappeared. She was out playing before dinner, but wasn't there when her parents called out to her. The side gate was open, so they assumed she left that way, but don't know why or where she went. Just talking about it now makes me shiver. I couldn't imagine what her parents must have been going through. I've got an idea now of what happened, but I'll leave it for myself to explain. Well, Venus called me this morning and left a voicemail for me. Hey, I've been out at the McCormick's place all night, and I think I've got a clue about the girl. One that the cops have missed. You've got to meet me so we can talk. That was at like 3am or something. She's mental. Absolutely mental. But got me thinking. I went into work and told Beatrice that Venus knew something. I didn't bother telling Heidi. She wouldn't have understood. Beatrice was pretty interested, so I took her with me to meet the other guys at the Black Cup Cafe just off Murray Street. Venus hadn't been in that day, so it was at the cafe that I first saw her. She was pretty rough looking. Her hair was uh, like just freaking all over the place and she had dirt smudged on her forehead and on the knees of her jeans. Tony and John were looking excited and John jumped to his feet when we arrived. He only gave B a quick curious glance before spewing his news out. Oh, B is what I call Beatrice. She likes it and it's easier to say than Beatrice. Venus found something last night. John couldn't hold himself back but managed to bite down his tongue and let Venus do some talking. Apparently, she went around to the McCormick place. It wasn't hard to find, as it had been plastered all over the place online. There was a pair of paw prints in the dirt outside the gate, but the McCormicks don't have a dog, and the size of the print meant it would have been a really big dog. She crawled on hands and knees, up and down the drive in the dark, and found more prints leading away from the house and onto the street. So she followed the street in the direction of the prints. She found herself in Bushland Park. The McCormicks were way out in the burbs where the bush park is common. She spent hours checking out the park and found herself in an historic graveyard from the 1800s, which preserved as part of an old church that used to service the local farms before the place was urbanised. There, she found one of the graves 
was recently dug over. So, naturally, with nothing better to do at two in the morning, she dug through the turned earth and found a little girl's hair clip. This was the clue she'd found. She would have gone further, but she heard a sound and got frightened. She described it as a sort of the sound of timber creaking like an old house, except it came from underground. I had no idea then what that could be, but I'm hitting my books to see if I can find anything that might make sense. John and Tony were convinced it was a monster of some kind, something living in the graveyard, or rather, under the graveyard. Bee seemed really interested too. She suggested I look through my books for clues. So, after work, I came home and... Well, I'm just about to start digging through my books. This really is probably the most exciting thing ever. I don't know that little Jennifer is still alive. It seems unlikely. But if it was a monster that took her, crap, that's probably the scariest, while the most exciting thing I could ever think of. How many missing people could be attributed to monsters? Like, monster monsters, not just human monsters. Is the murder rate really as high as we think, or is some decent percentage caused by these things? Hmm... Uh, there can't be that many monsters, really. I mean, that Ruguru described would stand out a bit. At least here in Australia. There just aren't enough unexplained deaths, and certainly bloody massacres are rare enough that I can't even think of one off the top of my head. But in South and Central America, and Africa, parts of East Asia, and even in the States, I think there's plenty of them. I know Mexico has a problem with criminal gangs who supposedly leave bloody massacres in their wake. Are all of them caused by crime gangs, or do they have an unusually high proportion of monsters? I think we might be lucky in Australia. Or maybe most monsters don't actually kill their victims and just take something from them, or what about shapeshifters who could take other forms? Ah, oh, there's too much there's too much for me to think about. I'll start with this book in the unreadable script. Uh, it'll be the quickest. Uh, uh, okay, let's see this. Ah, uh, look. Here, oh, geez, this book is badly organized. Okay, here there's a, a bunch of images of what look like botanical records and preparation techniques. There's also some pretty ugly looking faces and bodies drawn in here. I think they might be real critters. Well, they were real. Uh, there's little translated notes around a lot of the diagrams and pictures. Hmm. Oh, gee whiz, that... Ooh, gave me the creeps. There's one picture towards the back of a creature that seems to have horse legs that stands upright with what looks like bear claws for hands, a dog head, and a single horn. The picture has a creature holding part of a dismembered person that it is clearly eating with great relish. Yikes. I realise I might meet one of them sooner rather than later. Or maybe I'll not meet anything or anyone again. Or I'll get the other journals organised, you'll find the next entry very educational.
found a monster. At least we thought we had. What do you know for sure then? It was a strange moment where we all kind of looked at each other without speaking about it. It seemed pretty clear that we'd found what we'd all been looking for. Shared confirmation that the world was far richer and more diverse than we could have imagined. To date, we each had our own reason to believe, but if we found what had taken Jennifer, we would have corroborated evidence and we'd be hip deep in something so big and so intense that every other trouble we had had would just melt away into insignificance. We didn't speak any more of it until that evening after work. I think we all needed time to absorb and process what we had committed to. I went home that night and went straight to my books. I'm about to go meet the guys and share what I've learned. I don't know what we're going to do. Are we really going to go down an old graveyard and hunt a monster? Crap. This is some serious... Oh, well, crap. But what can we do? This might be what I've been looking for. My direction. My cause. I'd be really doing something. Not just being passive and letting life push me around. It would be me taking charge of things. Me. Ah, I'll record what I found here before I go see everyone. That way, I'll have something I can come back to, or there'll be some evidence if uh, if everything goes to hell. So, first of all, I look through the unreadable script book. I call that one The Script Book, for short. I didn't initially find anything in there, not surprising, but after reading an entry in the collected journals and writings of the hunters, I remembered something in the script book and went back to it. My best guess, and it is a guess, is the monster we are looking for is a ghoul, or some variant of that. Something I've noticed in these books is they rarely exactly agree on details. I found an entry in the Hunter's book about vampires, and while it largely agreed with the details in David Gelstein's work, the Hunter described an altogether more alien and monstrous vampire. Certainly not one that would hold a conversation with you or feel sorry for itself. Even in the Hunter's accounts of the Rougarou, he mentions the difference between the werewolves of the Old World versus the Americas. So, I've read a description of a ghoul, and it seems to fit what little evidence we have, with a few minor details missing. It's possible that every monster is unique, with only a loose set of classes each belong to, rather than breeds or species of monsters. So every ghoul may be somewhat unique, and every vampire different. Look, I'll read you the entry on the ghoul that seems to fit. Kufra, Ottoman Empire, 1713. Apparently this is in what we now call Libya. It's near Egypt. July 12. The Janissary officer led me to my quarters for the evening. There are still 20 days before I leave this heat-blasted land and return to the green hills of home in Wales. The monotony of each day grinds on me. I wake, eat some of the local millet porridge, I think it is millet anyway. Then, march on to the next village. So far, I haven't found the source of the diamonds, supposedly on the edge of the Sudan. The natives are welcoming enough, and far preferred to the occasional Italian I come across, with their penchant for garlic. I have made friends with a nice chap, travelling with his family. His name is Cal, or at least that's what I call him. His actual name is longer and hard for me to say, so Cal it is. 
he is traveling with his daughter Merit and wife Huai to Tripoli for a better life, I suppose. I haven't really pried too much. July 13. Last night, I was kept awake by an incessant scratching seeming to come from the walls or under the floor. I'd put it down to rats, but these would be the biggest rats I had ever heard of. I'm pretty sure there was a big dog sniffing around outside too. Or maybe that was under my floor. Nothing would surprise me in this sunblasted land of bizarre animals and odd peoples. Off to porridge and coffee I go. Merritt has gone missing in the night. Cal is absolutely inconsolable. He hasn't stopped saying it was a ghoul who took her. I've no idea what a ghoul is, or why, or how it would take a child. Evidently, we have one week and one day to find Merritt before the ghoul consumes her and takes her form. I can't say I really believe this superstitious nonsense, but I'm going to help search for her. We are meeting in the graveyard on the edge of the village. July 14. We spent the rest of yesterday and much of the night searching for merit. Cal had us inspect each of the graves, or burial mounds as it was, for fresh activity. The story I got from him was that a ghoul will make a nest below a graveyard feasting on the flesh of the dead. On the full moon, or after his food has run out, the ghoul will lure a child, especially a girl, to him while in the form of a hyena. He will then poison her with his envenomed claws to place her in a state of rigid torpor, not unlike death. After one week and one day, the ghoul consumes the child and takes their form. Every day in that form, they appear to age a year, which means they have but a short while to move on to another hunting ground before their disguise is ruined. Cal doesn't say why a girl child is selected, nor what a ghoul looks like in its true form, and why it can't travel without disguise. I'll be joining the Janissaries, walking ever-increasing radius circles around the village tomorrow. As much as I'd like to support my friend Cal, I think it more likely will find a trail or trace by being methodical and logical about this. It'll be a hard day today, as I again was continually awakened by the infernal scratching and scrabbling. July 16. We found merit. But I'm not sure I should say any more. My mind feels on the verge of cracking. I will do my best to record just the facts of what happened yesterday. I spent the day of the 14th fruitlessly circling the village, looking for track or trace of Merrill and her abductor. I sank with gratitude into my palate, only to be awakened some time later by the scratching. Having had enough of the broken sleep and feeling heartbroken in my efforts to help Cal and the grief-stricken Hui, I lost my temper. Immediately I fetched the large wood axe from beside the door and began hacking into my floor with a half-crazed intent to make most horrendous murder on the vermin scratching so incessantly therein. The floorboards splintered, and when I pulled them aside, I had to stop. The blood had drained from me and I shivered. The officer, who had shown me to my accommodation some two days prior, burst into my room to see what the noise was about. I pointed, and we both stood staring at the tunnel running under my room. Gnawed bones and tattered cloth littered the floor of the tunnel. The janissary started calling to his men, but I wouldn't wait. I grabbed his bayonet-adorned long gun and the small lamp by my bed and jumped into the tunnel before the startled soldier could stop me. 
My hands and knees got scraped up most awfully because I had to crawl along the tunnel, holding the gun with bayonet point ahead of me and pushing the lamp along the floor. I didn't know it then, but I have since discovered the officer's barracks where I was billeted was built onto what used to be the main temple and burial ground. The tunnel I followed branched out to what I considered to be lesser tunnels, which each ended in a dead end with gnawed-on bones and torn rags. Something, I'll call it the ghoul, had been tunnelling, digging up the bodies and gnawing on what was left of them. They were old, so they wouldn't have been much more than bits of dried and tattered flesh. I have no clue as to where the excavated dirt was stashed. The ground here was hard clay and limestone gravel, and would have taken a lot of effort to dig out. I can only guess the ghoul dug through the hard-packed dirt with his claw, and dragged the rubble off to some distant scree pile away from the village. When I caught up with the creature, I easily discovered how it had dug so much, so quickly. The tunnel I crawled along eventually opened out into a small cave with a hole in the ceiling showing the midnight sky above. The janissary had started down after me, and shortly exited. Looking at the ceiling, though I couldn't see it in the dark, I knew there would be a bucket and windlass over that hole, for this surely had to be the well in the centre of the village. There was a pool of mirror-smooth water in the middle of the cave, and other small tunnels leading off and up. Laying stiff as a board, arms in close and legs together like a soldier at attention, was Merritt. She looked as still as the dead, but I rushed up to her and put the lamp next to her and listened to her chest anyway. There was a slow but steady beat. If I had to estimate... I'd say her heart was beating just once every four seconds. Her flesh was cool to the touch and absolutely rigid, like she was a statue. Like beneath her skin was plaster and sand, rather than tissue and blood. I turned to watch the Ottoman soldier enter the cave and draw his sword looking around. I can't fully recall what happened at that point. I remember wondering where the ghoul had gotten to, and was just turning, picking up my gun, when something launched itself at me. It was so fast, I simply had no time to register what it was, but it mustn't have seen my weapon, as I was turning because it impaled itself with its lunge. The next thing I knew, I was laying on my back next to the pool, holding the butt of the gun while this creature screamed and writhed above me. Claws grabbed at the hard wood of the shaft, and needle-sharp teeth flashed in fury. The officer swung his sword and just about decapitated the ghoul with a single swing. A second sharp chop took the head off, and the body went limp. I include here my observation of the creature. I doubt anyone who wasn't there will believe it. The ghoul began decaying the moment the head came free. Within the quarter of an hour, the body had reduced to little more than bones and black powdery mould. By the end of the hour after it had died, there was nothing but ash. Its legs were covered in short, spotted hair, almost like fur. They ended in paws, not unlike a dog or hyena. Its body was smooth, leathery skin, with spots and stripes following the contours of hard, sinewy muscle. The face was reminiscent of a dog's also, with the stubby, hairless snout and multiple rows of needle-like teeth in front and sharp, chisel-shaped teeth towards the back. Its eyes were vertical slits, like a cat's eye with an exaggerated pupil, dilated to allow as much light in as possible. The hands, on the end of its skinny, ropey arms, were tipped by hooked claws that glistened black in the lamplight. 
This would be the venom it used to paralyze its prey, and the powerful tools it used to dig out the tunnels. We brought Merit out to the well, and took her to the mosque. The priest, a wise man with solemn and unsurprised eyes, lay her out and began immediately preparing a potion of some kind. It will evidently release Merit from the rigid torpor she was in. Without application of the antidote, she would apparently die in just a few more days. I left to meet the others after recording that. Oh, dumb. I should have explained about the antidote recipe I'd found, but I was packing darkies and just ran out. The script book had a recipe for a potion that would cure ghoul paralysis. A fairly simple recipe, really. It was a little tricky to find frankincense, but as it turns out, the local health food store had frankincense tears and oil. The oregano, sage and copper were easy, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I've got another journal to play. I recorded it while hunting in the cemetery and during the aftermath. We've met at the cemetery just after dark. Oh, we waited at Macca's, eating fries and watched the sun disappear. I'm pretty sure we'd all have preferred to do this in midday, but we didn't want to have to explain what we were doing. John brought his taser. Apparently his gun isn't a toy, and he has to account for every bullet. This would have been easier in the US. We would have all been out the gun packing machine guns and grenade launchers, assuming we could get them off the hands of the school kids that shoot each other with them. Yeah, yeah, hang on, I'm just recording this. I'll edit out any illegal stuff. We aren't really doing anything too illegal anyway. I guess digging up a grave is sort of vandalism, but if we're right, the ghoul will have already done that. Besides, if we can find Jennifer and give her the antidote, we'll be heroes. Not that we'll be able to tell anyone about this. Jennifer was taken exactly a week ago. According to that book, we should have 24 hours to find the ghoul and Jennifer before... Uh, whatever. Okay, okay, I'm here. Cool it! Tony and John have shovels. Venus is shining her torch on the grave while they dig it and... And, well, I'm talking to my phone. But I'm also keeping a lookout. I can't believe we're doing this. I mean, really doing this. It's real. This is a real monster. An actual, honest-to-God monster. Not some person with anger management issues uh, or having a bad trip. This... This ghoul... Uh, the motives of this ghoul, they're, they're pure. They're untainted by moral ambiguity. In the movies, they show the good guys shooting up the terrorists. But really, those terrorists, they think they're doing the right thing. They must think that or they wouldn't do it, right? I know there are people out there who do things specifically because it's the wrong thing to do. But we classify them as nutbags. That's a technical term, you understand. In any case, a ghoul isn't suffering from delusional psychosis. It hunts, it kills, and it eats people. Oh, gross! What the hell did I just step in? Ah! What's up? I'm, I'm okay. I think I just found the ghoul's, um, skin. Oh, I've seen enough, yep. Uh, the, the other guys are acting much, much the way I did. Big bad John is laughing at the ground, and it looks like Tony's working hard not to lose his fries, too. Like Venus is inspecting the loose pile of skin and hair, looking like she's doing an audit. So the ghoul eats someone, somehow takes their form, but each day they age a year. I, I guess at the end, when the form is too old, the ghoul sloughs off the old skin and 
digs a new burrow and a new cemetery. Oh, look, they've, they're back to digging again, a bit more enthusiastically now. I'll just, I'll just put my phone in my top pocket. Oh, what are you looking at now? Ah, oh, it's a tunnel right there, a ghoul tunnel. I don't think we need to crawl along it. No? No, this crawl tunnel will connect this grave to others, lead back to the central nest, which is where Jennifer will be. Are you sure? Look, I'm claiming expertise on ghoul behaviour, and I say they have a central nest where they keep their next victim and from where they branch tunnels out to the graves in the cemetery. I'll accept that. I wouldn't fit in there anyway. Tony isn't going in there without me. I don't think anyone wants to crawl through a dark tunnel. Maybe if I had a flamethrower or at least a spear. Guys, I think we'll need to think about gathering weapons if we're going to do this much more. We're going deeper into the parkland. If I had to guess, I'd say towards the centre. You're still recording? Natch, this might be the last thing anyone finds of me. At least I'll know what we're doing. Charming. Oh, there's a big concrete, um, thing sticking out of the ground. It looks like the manhole cover for a huge soak well or stormwater drain, uh, thing. I'm hardly a civil engineer or hydrologist or whatever, so I have no idea what the real name for this thing is. But it's about 60 centimetres above the ground with, it's got grill all around uh, the base and a, a concrete lid or, a, or maybe you'd call it a manhole cover on top. The whole structure must be about three metres in diameter. John! Get off! I feel like death warmed up. I got clawed by the ghoul. Yes, it was a ghoul. Crap, it was a ghoul. It looked part man, part dog. Jumped for me from the bushes and managed to get a swipe down my arm. I locked up almost immediately. It felt like, felt like my muscles had turned to stone. I couldn't move an inch. I could barely roll my eyes around. Thank God John can handle himself. I think about sun up some training if this is what I'm getting myself into. Look, John's taser absolutely kicked the ghoul's ass. Knocked him flat. John got it right in the thing's neck, just below the ear. I couldn't see what happened next because I was all like a statue lying on the ground. But they all piled on, hitting with their shovels. This thing was monstrous. There's a phenomenon known as the uncanny valley where something looks so close to human but isn't quite right. It mostly applies to robots, but I think there's something similar here. This thing looked so unnatural. Like its body followed a different set of biological laws from any other creature I've seen. It's almost like a real thing, but not quite. It was just off enough that it just revolted all of us. I guess that's why they have to wear disguises. They stopped hitting it when its body started crumbling and falling apart. It wasn't anything more than black, mouldy-looking dust when I was revived. We'd made a lot of the antidote for this reason. We pulled the rigid as a board Jennifer from the soak well. The ghoul had dug a ledge into the side of the pit and had stashed her body there. The antidote worked and a groggy and unwell Jennifer took a deep breath and vomited. I know what it feels like to wake up from ghoul paralysis and she'd been that way for a week. 
We walked her back to her house and sat in Tony's car with the lights off, quietly watching as the front door opened and Jennifer's parents, Phil and Tanya, stood gobsmacked, staring at their daughter in the downlight of their portico. We let our breaths out as one. The feeling was indescribable. Seeing tears glisten in their eyes and the obvious joy of Jennifer as she leapt into their arms was like a swift kick right in the feels. I think we all cried a little, though maybe only Tony would admit it. Even now, past the hangover-like feeling, I feel lighter, stronger. The real world being full of monsters and dark magics really only means there's greater opportunity for light to shine that much brighter. I'm not sure I can sleep now. I'll probably have to take tomorrow off, call in sick. But oh man, this is why I was born. All I want to do is feel this again. I want, no, I need to see people as happy as those parents. I need to know I've made a lasting and indelible difference in the world. Computer programming is nothing to this, to, to supporting humanity and being a part of what makes things good and stops things that make things bad. Ah, oh, I... Ah, oh, okay, now I do. I, I feel like crap. I felt good about saving Jennifer, but also physically very bad. I thought I'd figured out some secret formula. I was very wrong, and I'm ashamed of what happened next. Guilt has come and gone. I don't think retaining the feeling of guilt is useful once you've decided a course of action based on it. I'm committed to my course, and one way or another, I'll repay my mistakes. Oh God. <laughs> God. How's our work exactly? Abrahamic religions tell us there is but one God. But they're relatively recent inventions and the more ancient religions don't have such restrictions. Maybe they're all real in some form or another. Gods. Well, I'm pretty sure there's at least some truth to the Hindu pantheon. I'd be hard-pressed to discount them, all things considered. <sighs> okay, enough of that. Bye. I'll organise the next line of info dump. I had it all. I got it all. I took it all. Whatever. Look, killing that ghoul was such a big step. I'd already done magic and I'd seen a Maroi get killed, but the ghoul was just something... It was just something else altogether. We'd done it together. I mean, B wasn't there on the night, but she knew. She pointed us in the right direction. And she's... Well, she's as uh, hot as... Uh, uh, I don't... I don't really know how to end that sentence. Anyway, she's like a work of art. Like she was sculpted by a master craftsman with an eye for the feminine form, but one who doesn't indulge in unnecessary sensuality. Yeah. I could, well, um, I'll try to focus a bit. The ghoul cemented us together. We'll do anything for each other now. It's a bond unlike anything I've felt before. I think this is like what old war comrades must experience. And I don't mean to upset any old war comrades if they're listening, but I hope you get the idea. So there's more than that, though. We we have a shared knowledge now that so few people possess. Maybe we'll die for each other, or at least me for them. Oh, I hope. Look, the other would be unacceptable. Uh, I've pissed around enough. It's time for my shame. Eat it up. 
I hope it makes you feel ill. Ah, this is the third time I've had to start this entry. Heidi keeps calling me. She, she doesn't get it. I've got stuff to do, work to do, monsters to find. I took the day off after ganking that ghoul. <laughs> it was a ghoul gank, ganked ghoul. Uh, okay, that's about all I've got with that. Um, it, Big was at work when I came back. She knew. The news was all over the place, maybe all over the world. Jennifer had mysteriously turned up, back at home with a confused story about following a puppy into the bush where a monster took her to a cave. The official story is that she was lured away by a puppy... It was really the ghoul. I haven't looked it up, but I'm pretty sure they can somehow appear like a dog or hyena. Who knows? Then she was taken and drugged by someone looking to sell her into slavery. Yep, that exists. Pretty rare here in Australia, but apparently people are still paying money for kids. Look, check out Operation Underground Railroad if you have any doubt about it. I wonder how many of the kids they saved were destined for real monsters, not just human monsters. Look, as for her rescue... They are reporting that a group of unknown people, oh, sorry, a number of unknown individuals, as if we might be a known collective of the same person. What rubbish these journalists write. But the people, individuals, pulled her out and took her home, leaving without being identified. Man, I am so very cool. Like, like Batman. Okay, I can't really talk like Batman. Only... Without the Bruce Wayne billions and butler. That's okay. B knew it was us. I swear she looked at me with an appraising look. You know, an up and down, then a little little nod. My team at work knew something was up. They all look at me different now. I think my knowledge and confidence must be showing. I even went back to the bookshop and, just for the sake of it, I got another book on discount. The person at the counter was in awe, I think. Even though they don't know who I am and what I've done, I think it's just an aura that exudes from me at the moment. I haven't caught up with Ton, that's their celebrity couple name, and Venus since then, but we're meeting again on the weekend. Saturday night is going to be, what do they say these days in the US? Lit as hell? Or did they say that 10 years ago? Uh, Whatever. The town will be well painted red, and if I'm not having a meaningful conversation with the gutter on Sunday morning, then I've done it wrong. I'm going to ask B out. I mean, sure, she's a statuesque vision of beauty and Norse womanhood, even though she's clearly British. But then, I'm a monster hunter extraordinaire. I'm sort of like Buffy, only less good-looking and with fewer one-liners. So that's Buffy and Batman. Hmm. Look, B would like to go out with Buffy, right? Or Batman? I mean, who wouldn't? So, I'm in with a shot. Ah, no, Heidi, I don't have time for you right now. Cancelled. Oh, I don't like reliving that one. What a tool. Well, that's me. I might have recorded that back then, but it was still me that did it. I can't take it back. That the world was in the palm of my hand and... I was like unto a god of legend. At least that's how I felt. Right now I feel more like the sacrifice than the god. Ah well, what a screwed up world this is. Oh, let me add this journal next. 
talking about how screwed up the world is. I've had my hand in screwing it up just a little. I think it at least a step in the right direction that I acknowledge my part in social entropy. Woo! In the big smoke today, and tonight it is going off. There's his pub here in Perth that has a darts comp. If you get three bullseyes in a row, you get lunch for free. If you can Roman Hood the darts, you get a tab card worth 200 bucks. You know I'm going to win that. I mean, I mean, it's all well and good going out after bringing down a monster. But if we can't gain official recognition, too many Q's and A's if you know what I mean. Also, other monsters would like to try to eat us. We may as well get some free booze, right? I'm all over this. I deserve it and I'll share it with the others. B might come out tonight. I've been continuing my magic practice. I haven't pushed anything too big, and I don't think I will, like... I could have bound an air elemental to a fetish, like PVC undies, <laughs> every time, and used it to guide my darts home. But if I stuff that up, apparently, or so the warning goes, the elemental will, as best I can tell, rip me to shreds. I just don't see why anyone would mess with that. I'd imagine the people who first gave it a go had more to gain than a free lunch and a bar tab. Uh, who did figure this out? I mean, what process do you go through to even know there is such a thing as an elemental spirit, let alone the idea you can bind it to your will? Is there a school for this? Hogwarts or something? Ah, oh, geez, that'd for sure give up an honorary degree, like at least a high school diploma or something. No, here's the plan. I throw the darts at the board, and it doesn't matter what I score. I just pull the darts quickly and then gaslight everyone into believing I hit the bullseye and Robin Hood at the last throw. Where's that term come from? Did Robin Hood ever, in any of the versions of the story, stick one arrow up the butt of another? I guess arrows deserve love like everyone else. <laughs> you get my point. I'm going to work my magic like never before. I've got the verbal and somatic components sorted to steal terminology from D&D. The material component is pure rose oil. That's a hard one to come by. Most essential oils in the organic store are mixes of rose and alcohol, like an absolute, I think they call them. I searched Facebook and found some MLM advocate who had pure rose oil, but it cost an absolute bomb, like 50 bucks for a tiny, tiny little um, dram. But wow, it smells fantastic. I thought I didn't like the smell of rose because of the synthetic stuff used in soap and so on. The pure thing is just fantastic. I wonder if B would like some. Okay, here's the pub. I'll wish me luck. That's all I need. Mmm, steak, garlic truffle mash, outstanding. $200 bar tab, even better. Everyone is giving me my space and showing the respect you a true champion, which is nice. The bartender just quietly and solemnly served my beer. The waitress gave me my plate and left before she was enchanted by my mystique. This magic thing is awesome. Maybe I could try a conjuring and speak with a spirit. It would be a useful source of information. I'm getting good enough. I just have to make double sure my protective circle is complete and perfect before summoning. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, maybe not yet. A little too much chance of unwanted and sudden explosive death. 
Oh, hey. Like, there's Venus. She can see something's gone down. She's a tidy package. Shame she's all about Tony. No, like, tidy as she is, B is the pinnacle I want to... No, I will... I will summit. Is that a verb? Can a person summit a pinnacle? Well, who knows? Probably Miriam Webster. I, I think she lives in Oxford and invented books. Yeah, something like that. The only good that came out of that night was catching up with B. I didn't make a journal entry that night in part because I was way too intoxicated. And in part because I was tripping all over myself talking with B. I told her my life story more or less and made sure to point out my involvement in the rescue of Jennifer. Looking back, I probably should have asked her some questions. I know she's from Britain, but that's about it. I was so wrapped up in myself. Well, that will have to change after tonight. That's the first thing I'll do if I make it through. I'll ask B out again. Yeah. I went out on a date with her after that embarrassing night at the pub, but didn't ask her any more about herself. So tomorrow, I'll ask her out again, and this time, learn all about her. She's the only good thing to have come out of all, all of, all of what has happened. I think Heidi would want me. Uh, anyway, did things improve after the night at the pub? Did I get? my act together and see what I was really doing? Did I wake up and smell a magically obtained free coffee? Nope. But things got more interesting, that's for sure. Some time has passed since the last journal I played. Uh, I think maybe a couple of weeks. I got so caught up in work that I didn't think about it. As a recap, I was king of the hill and was important, and everyone loved me. Yeah, I had finally cracked the secret of the universe, and like a rose greeting the sun, my future was opening before me in a perfect bloom. Sarcastic? Me? Never. Well, this entry is about my new job at Gemworld. It's a real killer. So, so busy. This is the first breather I've had in a fortnight. I wonder what Heidi is doing these days. I saw her yesterday morning at the cafe we usually meet at, but I had to apologise and rush on to work. I had a project meeting to get to. I'm leading the project, which is fantastic. Oh, what is the project, you ask? We've got a new product, an online game, where you collect coins by playing some mini-games like Match Three Gems or Shooting a Ball at a Wall of Gems, and so on. So the coins then let you wager on the outcome of a death match, where random players are matched against each other in a game of gem matching. Anyway, you gain advantage by buying useless crap for a couple of bucks. I can't believe people pay for these games, but it turns out there are plenty of willing, and so I have a job. Naturally... I've been using my persuasive magical self to keep the team on point and working together. Nothing major, just a little nudge here and there to keep everything working. I've been catching up with the gang on a Thursday night. Venus still thinks she has a chance with Tony. John is doing security for Arwen Ajeev. 
while he's in the country as part of his world tour. I've never heard of the guy until John mentioned him. Turns out he's absolutely massive in the iPop scene. I didn't even know there was an iPop scene to be massive in. But I guess with a billion people in India and Indian people having spread around the world, there's a market there without even considering the iPop fanboys and girls. They're the ones who have rejected the K and J-pop trend and moved up the alphabet. Eventually, they'll end on A-pop and have nowhere to go until we meet aliens from one of the planets we catalogue by number only. A-pop is short for Angolan pop. Big in Central Africa and Tasmania for some reason. Oh, and I took Beatrice to a fancy pants restaurant in Perth, Troubadour, where we had a simply awesome night. B told me of how she exercised a demon. That's her connection to the real world. Apparently, this demon possessed a guy who was B's mentor and was starting to cause trouble. She found a pendant of his. She showed me the pendant. It looks like a hokey red glass and brass thing you'd see around a fortune teller's neck in a B-movie. Like the demon was bound to the pendant, so she doused it in holy water and performed the... Vit- vit- the, uh, the viaticum, which is part of the Catholic last rites, evidently. I've no idea where she learnt that or why she decided it would work, but it did. Unfortunately, her mentor, Joseph something or other, didn't survive the possession and subsequent exorcism. The really bad thing is the demon wasn't killed or returned to, well, I guess, hell, but was simply expelled. So it has probably possessed another poor sap. She's been looking for it ever since. But how do you find a demon that could possess any one of the 7 billion people on the planet? Facebook? I don't know. You know, I think B suffers from a bit of PTSD about the demon possession thing. From time to time, she's gotten weird on me. All distant and stiff. Sometimes she walks like she has a limp, but quickly recovers. After tonight, I'll tell her I'll help her find this demon. It might be the closure she needs. But before that can happen, there's a little matter of my impending death that needs to be dealt with. Ah, here's some more flotsam from the drifting wreck of my recent past. My distant past was no centrepiece of a great feast of joy for sure, but... I hear. Listen to more of my dark moments. I skipped out and Heidi again today. I'm just too busy with my project. I really should make some more time to catch up with her. She looks sad or angry today. I'm not sure which, but aside from that, I got to work and my team met me with coffee and morning tea. I've got them well wrapped around my finger because I'm the boss man. Oh, other than my actual boss, Shilpa Patel. She's a sharp one, I can tell. She called me into her office today. I remember the last time I was called into the boss's office at my last place. That didn't work out so well. This time, it was way better. Here, I'll play it out for you. Come in, sit down. That's Shilpa, except she's got a real Indian accent, not my sort of racist white man effort. But I'll keep it up because, though it may not sound like Shilpa, and it'll probably offend a few people, I think it gets across her commanding tone. I could be wrong. 
Hi, what's up? That's me with a deeper, more manly voice because in my imagination I'm an action hero and always sound like that. I've been watching your progress with the team and it seems you have great potential. Thank you. It's a great honor to be given such responsibility. I won't let you down. <laughs> no, I didn't really say it like that. Um, but that would have sounded great, right? I think I actually just said thanks. Gem Match Deathmatch will be launching in three weeks' time on Sunday. I want you to be the first deathmatch against our first player. You'll lose naturally. Oh, dear, that didn't work. You... <laughs> I'm sorry, it isn't that easy. You'll lose nat... No, no, I'm doing a bit Scottish. You'll lose naturally. She's not Scottish. I'm sorry, I'm going to just do the next in my normal voice because I've lost it. You'll lose naturally because we can't have our first customer experience to be one of loss. It will be an invitation live stream event. All the important people in our industry will be watching. So really showcase everything you've been working on. That's what I really need from you. Your talents on display, the breadth of your knowledge of the game before you fall. An exhibition match. I'll be sure to prepare a show worthy of legend. Again, I didn't really say it that way. It was more like, oh, you want me to play games at a launch party? Sounds good. Excellent. Make sure we make the deadline. It is important for many people. So there you go. I'm headlining the first death match. It sounds dramatic like something from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, but really all I have to do is match gems to clear a board. There are various features like special patterns you can make for bonus points and stuff. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to show as many of those uh, as I can before letting myself lose. Although I guess my opponent might be just better at it than me somehow. Like the whole team will be there. B will be there, and of course Shilpa, and the live streaming journos and industry bigwigs. I'm not sure who they are, but still, it'll be a big moment for me. I was even able to get invites for Venus, Tony and John. Shilpa said she'd be sure to have my friends there. So that's cool. Now that I listen back to that journal, I realise how... Sinister, it sounds. This launch event, tonight, is not exactly what I described it as. I had my head so far up myself, I couldn't see what was really happening. Remember how I said I finally figured out how the real world works? Well, I had no idea, of course. Now I see things a little differently. If I could avoid tonight, I would. But this isn't about me, not anymore. Shilpa's invitation was genuine. She needs me there, but I'm not sure how well this will turn out for everyone else. I hope to disappoint more than just a few people. I hope to disappoint myself. This is my exit plan.